Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. In episode 141 of Reclaiming the Faith, my wife and I continue our discussion about what Paul meant in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we also look at what it means when Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also, if you've been blessed by my new album, Dusk and Dawn, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on the uh, Apple Music link to that album or wherever you're listening to it. I would really appreciate it. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and you can find links to everything that we do on BDK's website, omegafrequency.com, and you can also find a ton of content at our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 141. So uh, let's let's dive in. This is Philippians one, uh, starting in verse twenty one, and we're going to read uh, all the way to verse twenty six. So Paul says, "For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But I, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose." But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Jesus Christ through my coming to you again. So Steph, before we dive in, um, is there anything like what what's maybe a theme or um a truth that God has been just kind of that's really been standing out to you uh as we've been going through this Philippians series so far? There's a lot of things that have really stood out to me um in this time, but um I think just understanding that like I think I'm seeing Paul as more of a person who who's going through trials and going through difficult stuff like us, but so much more so. And his joy in the midst of that, I think has really been, been powerful for me because, um, I mean, this has, honestly, we're, we're, a lot of people have it a lot worse than us right now, but I still want to complain because I want, I want to get together with all my friends and I want to do all kinds of things or, you know, whatever, um, but we're we're in this waiting period, and I think that understanding that that's what Paul is going through, and just the amount of joy and what he's using his time well for. I think I am really good at wasting a lot of time, so I think that's been also, yeah, pretty convicting to me. Just to, yeah, see his continued perseverance. You know, that's kind of all over the place, but. You know, it's there's a lot there's a lot of different layers to what we've been studying. So, yeah, yeah. Most um most Bible commentators say that the theme of this book is joy. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, John Piper said that it's the most joyful book in the Bible. Um, and it's just really cool to think about that and to remember that as you're you're hitting on the context of this is that he's in prison, he's in Rome mm-hmm. um, for the cause of Christ, not because of anything. That he's done wrong, but right. because he's a bond servant of Christ, um, and he's encountered all kinds of beatings, uh, all kinds of tribulation and trials as he's here, and then he has people, um, Christian preachers, reveling in in him being in prison, 
you know, and trying to exploit that for his own gain and or for, for their, their own, own gain. gain. And mm-hmm. um, and yet he's just got this. It's not this fake happiness. You know, some people, I'm sure we've all met them who um, seem like they're joyful all the time, but really it's a front. While there are some right. people, you know, who are genuinely like joyful people. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul is one of those guys. I don't get the the um, the feeling that he's just like bouncing off the wall like that it's something much deeper right going on in him this joy and um brian said does does paul not see the church under attack uh well where he was yeah he he absolutely did um believe that the church was under attack in his day uh for sure uh you can see in acts chapter 20 when he's talking to the elders from the church at ephesus that that uh come to meet him as as he's on his way uh, to Jerusalem uh, to get arrested. He knows he's going to get arrested. He tells you, I know savage wolves among you are going to spring up to try to um, hurt and deceive and uh, harm the flock. So I hope that answers your question. All right. So the first thing I wanted to, to focus on uh, that we didn't spend very much time on last time uh, is this this phrase, to live is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. First, I want to talk about like what Paul means by to live is Christ. Just want to highlight a few things, not going to go too in depth, but a few things here. Uh, In verse one of Philippians chapter one, Paul and Timothy are bond servants. They are bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in, uh, in Philippi. You know, that Paul starts this letter off by calling himself a bond servant. That's what he, he's saying. I'm a slave of Christ. So, you know, just um, for, for him, he's saying 24-7, I serve Christ. That's one way to look at to live is Christ. I mean, we, we like getting off the clock at work, you know, as we leave work at work, don't try to bring work home. Right. But Paul is saying, no, there's no getting off the clock for me. Mm-hmm. Everywhere it's like permeated all, every aspect of who he is. It's not what he does on Sunday or it's not what he does when people are looking. It's all the time. Yeah. And I, I, I think if you only had like one choice, one, one phrase or one word to describe what it means to, uh, for Paul to say to live is Christ, that's probably the, the simplest way to describe it, what he uses in, in, in verse one. He's a bondservant. He was, he's a slave of Christ Jesus. But continue with this idea of to live is Christ. I want to highlight a couple more verses so this is Galatians 2.20. Uh, this is a pretty classic passage. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, that would seem like he's dead in a sense, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I n- now live, I live in the flesh. Uh, sorry. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What what grabs you about that verse about Galatians 2:20? You know, I think it's just this idea that of being crucified with Christ. Um while, you know, the vast majority of us are not going to experience anything like a crucifixion, we are going to, you know, that's kind of the idea with baptism, you know, the old self dies. And uh if only that meant that we were perfect or we were going to do things the right way. But what it does mean is that we're a new creation and that, um, you know, that God is at work in us and that God is going to do something great with us. That doesn't necessarily mean great in the eyes of the the world. Cause obviously yeah. what Paul is going through is not what any of us really want. You know, none of us really want to be locked up in prison. Even if it is for Christ, we don't probably seek that out, but I think it's, his old, if it was his old self that was still alive, he would definitely not be seeing things the same way. He would not be experiencing the joy, but this is a new person. This is someone who is entirely different and has the attitude and the mind of Christ. Hmm. Um, he's putting the needs of others before himself. He's putting the cause of Christ at the forefront. And he is, yeah, his, his life is mattering in a new way. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So living for Christ and living by Christ. 
Yeah. Awesome. Going to get one more passage about like what Paul means by to live is Christ. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 16. This is just um, a really, really neat passage for, for me, at least. It's really cool. It's 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 16. Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Now he hits that kind of a word again in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, um, the love of Christ com compels us or controls us. For I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Just pause right there for a, for a minute. For woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woes are never good. W woes are not good. <laughs> I, if I've learned anything from the Old Testament... Woes are bad. <laughs> yeah, and from the New Testament too, right. right? Jesus in Matthew 23, mm -hmm. the Pharisees, and he gives the seven woes. Um, woes are terrible. It, it basically means impending judgment. Yeah. Um, and it, You're going to get yours. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it also kind of reminds me too of um, Jeremiah mm -hmm. when he's saying like, your word is like a fire in my bones. Mm. You know, like I have to, I have to preach this, but it's, it's almost, I mean, it's more than that. When Paul's saying, woe to me, if I don't, he's basically saying, I'm going to bring myself under a curse. If I don't preach the gospel, like I'm cursing myself if I don't preach the gospel. Yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that's from God though, right? Like he's basically calling himself out. Don't, don't let me do this. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I feel like that's how I interpret it. But I think that's because he just experienced the profound transformation of the gospel. And he's like, why in the world would I hold back from preaching the gospel? Why in the world would I, you know, withhold something that gives life, something that mm. um, is a cure for the, the death? So he says, woe is me. This is at 16b, basically. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Uh, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have, been, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That's an interesting one. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might be a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who completes Sorry, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Mm. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I mean, it's just... Uh, that's such a powerful passage. He's not just like saying, you know, when in Rome, act like Romans. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not just saying blend in for no. the sake of blending in. He's basically saying he's trying to stay focused in every situation because, you know, like First uh, John 2 would say that um, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not just our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, right? So he's, or Paul would say in 1 Timothy that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And so 
He's trying to make the most of every opportunity, as Ephesians 5 would say, um, to do good because the days are evil. He's trying to make the best uh, of every situation he has Mm -hmm. to display the glory of Christ to everyone. Not that everyone will receive it, but that hopefully some will. And that he won't be the hindrance. Like there's, I mean, there's a lot of people that say, or maybe they wouldn't say it, but they may have missed out on the gospel because they saw somebody misrepresenting it. Mm. And uh, there's always going to be people like that around. But for us to strive to not be that hindrance Mm. for folks, for us to represent Jesus exactly as he should be. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Paul would say, uh, follow me as I I follow follow Christ. Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to get into the comments just a little bit. Um, Let me see if I I missed some. Uh, I thought I saw something. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Matthew was talking about missing opportunities to, Mm. um, I don't know if that's to share the gospel or to reflect Christ. I mean, it's kind of, they go hand in hand, but um, feeling guilty over that. And I think that, um, I mean, I think that it's good that we don't just blow it off, but I think that it's also important that we don't, you know, beat ourselves up over it and stay on that because you'll miss other opportunities. Like there's literally opportunities all around us all the time and we can choose to bring life or to bring death. And, um, you know, I think that, I, I mean, there's been so many opportunities I've missed, but there's also been a lot that have you know, God has appointed these moments and it's been really, really cool to see what happens when I do say the thing that I feel like the Holy Spirit's put on my heart. Yeah, it's almost like they kind of sneak up on us sometimes. Yeah. You know, like I remember back when I was like 23 or 24 and I had, I was I was at Houston Baptist University and I had out my, I don't remember what class I was in, whether it's like systematic theology or something like that mm-hmm. or a senior seminar. Um, and I had my little journal out or that I was using to take notes. And mm-hmm. some guy behind me that was sitting behind me was like reading what I was looking at and just struck Very up a conversation with me. And like yeah. we talked for 30 minutes or so. That's awesome. Yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but um, situations like those will remind me just to, uh, to ask God in just these little quick prayers, just like give me eyes to see in this moment. You know, help me see what you want me to see. Help me not yeah. miss what you're trying to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some situations where you can be more bold mm. and be more direct. And then there's some, depending on your workplace or depending on different things that you may have to kind of be more careful with the words you choose. Mm. But I, th- I found God to be very helpful in like helping me, um, I don't know, to stay within the rights of my job and to still try to, like drop these little seeds. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And I think that's part of like the Jew, Greek, barbarian, that kind yeah. of stuff under the, not because not everybody's at the same place, you know, mm-hmm. like with, with a Jew in Paul's day, you have a, the whole foundation of the old Testament. You can go right to scripture with someone like that. They're not going to get offended at all mm-hmm. with a, with a, with a Greek or a Roman. Like they may not be offended at scripture, but that may not be what connects with them. Right. You know, that's like why Paul uh, in his sermon on Mars Hill, like he, he um, he's going through the Areopagus or whatever. Like he, he starts with, you know, this idol or an altar to an unknown God. He meets them where they are. Mm-hmm. He, he does not quote very much scripture at all yeah. in that message in Acts 16 because they don't have the foundation for it. And I think that's one of the ways that you see Paul to a Greek becoming like a Greek. Right. Still presenting the gospel, but... Like Oh, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Philip and the Ethiopian. Yeah, right. You know, he started where the guy was. The guy's yeah. reading Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to understand this? Well, okay. Yeah. You know, and God will help you in that moment to be able to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. He's setting up those divine appointments. All right. Um, so that's, I think, a pretty good connection of what it means to live for Christ. But I do want to highlight one more thing that was just kind of... Uh, one of the commentaries I was reading pointed this out and it just, it blew my mind. Um, So let me put this up again. There's a a connection to Job 
where uh, the context of to live as Christ is found. And so we can go back first to Philippians 1.19, uh, reading up to uh, to live as Christ in verse 21. So this is Philippians 1.19. Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all bulls, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, the really cool thing that um, I saw in this commentary is that <laughs> I had never seen this before, that Paul is quoting Job 13 when he says, I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Mm -hmm. He's just straight up quoting Job. Now, the language is a little bit different in the English translation of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But I'm going to put up Job 13, 16 here and think about what Job is going through when you read this. All right. So this is Job 13, 16. Job says, and this shall turn out for my salvation, basically. This shall turn to me for salvation. It's kind of antiquated language. For fraud shall have no entrance before him. Here. Hear ye my words, for I will declare in your hearing, behold, I am near my judgment, and I know that I shall appear evidently just. So Job is like, I know I'm about to die, but I'm going to be vindicated. This, this whole thing, this whole situation is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now think about that in regards to what Job is going through. Why is Job going through what he's going through? Because of his righteousness. Yeah, and because yeah. Satan's like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Attacking. Satan's attacking, and God's like, um, have you ever seen this guy, Job? There's nobody like him. He will not renounce me, even if you strike him. Right. So there's this whole cosmic battle going on, this showdown between God and Satan that God uses Job um, to take part in. Mm -hmm. So Job is there to like be a declaration of, of God's truth, which will not be conquered. Mm. And think about what Paul is, is doing there. He is living um, for the gospel, not just for, um, for humans to know the truth, but to declare the truth of the gospel to the angelic beings as well, mm. particularly to those who are rebellious. And just to make that case a little bit more clear, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. All right, Ephesians 3, Paul writes, To me, talking about himself, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things? Why? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but that's like, to me, it's, it's, it's huge. Because Paul is saying like he's in the same kind of struggle that Job was in. And he's also saying that we're in a similar situation as well. Okay. That we are one of God's instruments to make war against the rebellious heavenly authorities. To show them the folly, the foolishness of them leaving their position basically as sons of God mm -hmm. to try to eclipse God to be their own gods um, when being a bondservant of God is far better. Right. Right? Like we're getting what they gave up. Right. It's that whole like there's a freedom that leads to slavery mm. kind of thing and a slavery that leads to freedom. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can choose to have freedom on our own terms, which is not actually going to be free, you know, or as liberating as we think it will. It's going to actually leave us in shackles, but, um, or we can choose to kind of come in line with what, what God is calling us to do and to, to live by those standards and realize that he really does know better than we do. And he really 
um, he is the one that brings true freedom. Yeah. And it gives more like, I think it gives more motivation for us when we're going through trials. And you may not see people, you may not think people are necessarily seeing you be faithful, but there's a lot more eyes that are watching. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's been... we can't see. I've had friends that have gone through some difficult stuff and they tell me afterward how they'll they'll start hearing from people, you know, that they were watching and we you know we've we we have a a girl that we know that that lost her husband and she's you know basically a whole lot of people got to watch how she dealt with that and um it was really inspiring to a lot of people i think mm-hmm. so um the way that we suffer either i mean it can it's not that we have to pretend that everything's great it's that we understand that there's a hope beyond this life and that we're not promised anything. We're not promised another day. I'm not promised that I'm going to get a certain number of years that we are married. Um, And I'm not promised that life is going to be, you know, even relatively easy. But I am promised that there is something beyond this life. And I am promised that I'm going to suffer, you know, right? We're told that in this world, you will have troubles, but but take heart. Hmm. I've overcome the world. So... Yeah. Well, you know, continuing with that thought, um, that's kind of one reason why Paul would say to die is gain. There's something Mm. beyond this. Yeah. Now, um, that's the next section that we're going to really focus on. What does Paul mean by to die is gain and why is death gain for a believer? Let's read a little bit of this and we'll get into a few different places that Paul uses to describe what happens to a believer after uh, we die here. All right. So Philippians 1.23, that's our verse. Um, Why is to die gain? Paul says, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. All right. Now this should be pretty easy to think about. If you've, you know, been in church for a while, um, death, dying right now is far better than living because you get to literally be with Christ. Now, we are with Christ right now, in a sense, mm-hmm. or Christ is with us. He's not just Emmanuel at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Um, but as John 14 as Jesus says in John 14, I'm going, to leave, uh, I'm going to, if I leave you, I will send a helper, the spirit of truth, who is with you and will be in you, right? And he's like, it's better if I leave because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Right. So that's pretty cool. We have Jesus with us now, but mm-hmm. dying actually brings that to a, a new level. Being with Christ in a new level. Yeah. Remember Paul in... First, or sorry, in Philippians chapter one, in verse 23, said that dying is much, much better. That that word, like much better, he's stressing that to the nth degree. Superlative. It is a absolutely, that's a great word. It's a superlative. It, it's the best um descriptive, the best adjective that he can use uh to say, think about how good it is now. We have a conscious relationship with Christ now. Mm-hmm. And yet it's going to be so much better. Right. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is ter- torn down, he's talking about his own body, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. It's kind of what Matthew was talking about earlier. Six, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. 
For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. And I say, and I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Just for a little bit, I want to talk about what the earliest Christians believed about life after death. All right. And um, I'm going to summarize it again. You can listen to that two-part episode. Uh, you're going to get a whole lot of um, whole lot of this that I'm going to try to bring down to like five minutes right now. Try to do this in about five minutes. Here, <laughs> here's a, a summation of what they believed. When we die, we go to the realm of the dead. Now, for those who believe in Jesus, we go to like the upper realm, which would be called upper Hades or paradise, as Jesus says in like Luke 23, or Abraham's bosom, like Jesus says in Luke 16, I believe. This is with God. Like in Luke 16, it's the poor man Lazarus goes to be with Abraham, Abraham representing um God, basically, or the uh, insurrectionist on Jesus's right saying, or Jesus saying, um, or the, th- the insurrectionist, the thief saying, remember me, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom. And uh, Jesus says, amen. And today you will be with me in paradise. And yet we know from the scriptures that Jesus went into Hades from like Psalm 16, which the disciples quote, in several of their uh, apologies, their defenses of the gospel in their early sermons. Now, this is a very heavenly place. This is incredible, all right? You would not, if, if you're, whatever your picture of heaven is, it's going to be better than that. Right. Okay? So don't get, you know, depressed when you hear this word Hades because that's basically just the realm of the dead, okay? Now, Hades has... Basically, like two and a half compartments. I need to use my hands a little bit. It has two and a half compartments. You always need to use your hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it has like upper Hades, and this is like what would be called paradise or Abraham's bosom. You're with Christ, right? But then you have lower Hades, which is not hell, but it's hellish. The word um, Gehenna, lake of fire, is only, it's, it's used to speak to what happens after the white throne judgment. That's when people are thrown into the lake of fire. And the first two beings to be thrown into the lake of fire, if you read Revelation 19, are the Antichrist and the false prophets. So no one right now, from an early Christian view, no one is in hell properly speaking, if you're saying that that's the lake of fire, no one is in that, that. But people absolutely are in a, that have rejected Jesus are in a horrifically hellish place. Jesus would say, this is like outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. So just horrific. And if you think about, uh, Lazarus and the rich man parable in Luke 16, you know, he is in extreme agony, not just physically, but psychologically as well and emotionally, because he can see Lazarus, the rich man can see Lazarus in just a a perfect state, basically. So that's, that's agonizing because he can't cross over there. He can't get any physical relief from his pain, and he's he is conscious of the fact that his brothers don't believe. Right. So, conscious torment, uh, even before Lake of Fire. All right, so that's that's basically what they. Oh, that's the last half. So upper half, lower half, and then down below would be Tartarus, like you read about in Second Peter two. 
um, the uh, angels who uh, uh, rebelled are there being kept in chains. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for, for hanging out, buddy. Really appreciate you and what you do for the kingdom, brother. Um, so at the return of Christ, they believe at the second coming, right? Bodies are raised and we're transformed. Corruption puts on incorruption. Mortality puts on immortality. We reign with Christ for a thousand years in the new Jerusalem and beyond into eternity. After the thousand years, the rest of the dead are raised. And those whose names are not in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire where the beast, false prophet, and Satan have been thrown. All right. That's in a nutshell what they believed about life after death. I want to read to you, and I said it was going to be five minutes, dang it, but uh, it'll be a couple more. Um, I just want to read to you an account uh, from a guy named Hippolytus. Hippolytus was, um, he's like a spiritual great-grandson of the Apostle John, all right? Like John discipled Polycarp, Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, and Irenaeus discipled Hippolytus. All right, so this guy has a direct connection to John. Uh, and I want to read what he says about uh, what happens when we die. Kind of close your eyes and try to picture this uh, as he writes, because it is quite descriptive. He says, now we must speak of Hades. Remember, Hades is not necessarily a bad place. It's just the realm of the dead, upper and lower chambers, right? Now we must speak of Hades in which the souls of both the righteous and the unrighteous are detained. Hades is a place in the created system. It's rude. It's located beneath the earth in which the light of the world does not shine. And since the sun does not shine in this place, there is necessarily perpetual darkness there. This place has been, been destined to be, as it were, a guardhouse for souls. The angels are stationed there as guards distributing temporary punishments for characters according to each one's deed, deeds. And in this locality, there is a certain place set apart by itself, a lake of unquenchable fire into which we suppose no one has yet ever been cast. But the righteous who will obtain the incorruptible and unfading kingdom are indeed presently detained in Hades, but not in the same place with the unrighteous. For to this locality, there is one descent at the gate of which we believe an archangel is stationed with an army. And when those who are conducted by the angels who are appointed unto the souls have passed through this gate, they do not all proceed down one and the same path. Rather, the righteous are conducted in the light toward the right and being hemmed by the angel standing at the place. They are brought to a locality full of light and there all the righteous persons from the beginning dwell. They are not ruled by any necessity. Rather, they are perpetually enjoying the contemplation of the blessings that are in their view. Also, they delight themselves with the expectation of other blessings ever new. In fact, they consider the new blessings as ever better than the first ones. And that place brings no labors for them. In that locale, there are neither fierce heat, cold, nor thorns. But the faces of the fathers and the righteous are seen to be always smiling as they wait for the rest and eternal revival in heaven that follows this location. And we call this place by the name of Abraham's bosom. All right. So that is Hippolytus describing what happens to believers when they die in the state between our death and the resurrection of our bodies at Christ's, uh, Christ's return. If you want to believe that or not, that's okay. Um, but just remember, for Paul, Paul is saying, if you're going to live, then you're going to live for Christ. And if you're living for Christ, then to, to die for you, that is gain. And in fact, as good as you may feel your relationship with Christ is right now, it's going to be far, far better 
after you die. Far, far better. In fact, you will be at home with Christ. All right? But until then, until we die, Paul says, if I'm going to live on in the flesh, though, this is going to mean fruitful labor for me. So let's think about this fruitful labor. Don't want to just always be thinking about death. If we're going to be here, are we going to have fruitful labor for Christ? Um, let's think about this, this term fruitful. First, let's go to John 15, okay? John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, and he says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be, the, be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Seems like he's making a connection between fruitful labor and joy. Um, If you remember, we were talking about about uh, fruitful labor a couple of talks ago. And uh, Jesus saying, I am the vine that's in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the type of fruit that would come off a of Jesus vine would be Jesus fruit, basically mm-hmm. making disciples. Right. Yeah. You have anything that you wanted to? No, I think that's good. I think we're going to, we're going to look a lot. We're going to help. Yeah. Make us make disciples. I think that's one of the biggest indicators if we're abiding and not just disciples of us. We don't want disciples of us. We want disciples of Jesus. Yeah, for sure. I want to hit on another another idea of not just fruitful labor for us, but the connection between fruitful labor and helping others progress in the faith. All right, so I'm going to read to verse 25, 22 to 25, starting up here. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better, very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Earlier, he talked about, in in Philippians, he talked about how we're called to help the gospel progress and how he's been seeing the progress of the gospel, even while he's being imprisoned. But that is something that's driving his life, seeing the gospel progress. But he also is, one of the ways that the gospel progresses is when it progresses in us. And so I'm going to, I'm going to read this for y'all. Um, this is probably my favorite chapter of the Bible outside of like a gospel. Um, the last, one of the last verses in second Peter chapter three, uh, Peter is praying that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he basically describes how to grow, how to progress in your faith, to grow in your faith, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in Second Peter chapter one. So I want to read for you all Second Peter chapter one. I'll put it up on the screen, and I want you to think about some of the things that he's saying. Um, maybe after we do Philippians, if we're still in Corona time at the school, we'll do another Bible study. If we do, I'd like to do Second Peter. Who knows? But uh, please don't let Corona go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So he- here we go. Um, this is just phenomenal for me. So 2 Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Christ Jesus to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Notice that he's saying, you guys, you have the same, you have received the faith just like me by the righteousness of our God and savior, Jesus Christ, Right? We received it because of what he did, not because of what we did. So he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Pause for a second. Remember, Paul talks about being a partaker in grace and a partaker in the gospel. And Peter says that he's basically kind of talking about the same thing here. He's talking about becoming a a partaker in the gospel and in grace is becoming a partaker of the divine nature. Now that's just incredible. And that kind of goes along with what Paul said too in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 17 and 18, when he's talking about how we through the Holy Spirit are being transformed into the image of the Lord. He also talks about that in Romans chapter 8, whom those, how those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Mm. That's just powerful, but he's not just talking about necessarily like glowing bodies that can walk through walls and that kind of stuff. That's not so much what he's talking about. He's talking more about the character of Christ. Mm. And that's really what he gets at, what Peter gets at. So look, so that you may become, sorry, let me click on the thing. So that you may become up here, a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust or over desires. Now, here we go. This is how to progress, how to put those promises into action. All right. Verse five. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. That's like, you know, firsthand knowledge of God. Um, not just like head knowledge, but experiential knowledge. In your knowledge, add self-control. And to your self-control, supply perseverance. I love this term, perseverance. Just real quick. I was, uh, we were moving really heavy bookcases today that your yeah. your dad made, right? And these things are crazy heavy. Uh-huh. I've moved a lot of furniture in my day, helping people move and us moving too. And it's, I remember helping this older woman move stuff and uh, your dad and I were helping her move. Uh-huh. And we had this just crazy heavy, like chest of drawers. It was unreal how heavy that thing was. And we are just struggling, right? And she's like, move it a little bit this way. No, no, a little bit. Back, no, no, no. I mean, doing that whole thing that's like, you know, it's like a meme, basically, yeah. you know? Yeah. That was actually happening. And we wanted so bad to drop it. But this is like antique furniture. Don't drop the chest of drawers. You know, don't drop it. And that's yeah. like the idea of perseverance. That you want to quit so, so, so bad, but you mm. don't drop what God has put in your hands. Right. You hold on to the very end. All right, keep going. Sorry for that, but I love that word. Um, and, and add to your perseverance, godliness. And add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. And add to your brotherly kindness, love. Now, eight. For if these qualities are yours, and if they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Remember, he talked about being diligent up here, applying all diligence, right? All diligence. So be even more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you, election of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you, growing in grace. Mm. So Paul wants to help them learn these character qualities, which are characters of God. Mm-hmm. These are characteristics of God. Right. Now, kind of closing it out, all right? Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain in, con- 
and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Remember, in John 15, Jesus is saying, I want you to keep my commandments and love people as I've loved you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus is doing discipleship right now with his disciples, with his apostles, and he's telling them to keep his commands. Remember, the last command he gives them in Matthew is to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. To depend on his power to teach other people to obey him by his power as well. Say that again? Yeah, depending on his power mm -hmm. to teach other people to obey him by his power. Okay. Right? Uh, and when, when discipleship happens, joy is a result. It should be a result of true discipleship um, of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's clearly a joy for Paul to see these Philippians progressing in their faith and acting so much like Christ in the midst of tough times. You had something in your mind. Yeah. I mean, you said uh, with discipleship, joy is going to increase, right? If we're, if we're truly doing it right. If we're truly doing it right. Making disciples of yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Is that joy in the person being discipled or the person that's discipling or both? Probably both. Yeah. I mean, I think that the more that we get out of our own heads and we stop worrying about the things around us, the more that we are invested in other people and invested in like them coming to know Jesus, the more that our joy increases because we, you know, I think that, you know, the enemy wants us to isolate and to think that our problems are so much worse than everybody else. And the more that you share those experiences with people, the more that you realize we all are hurting. We all are hurting in different ways. So, you know, but we can have joy and we can be there, you know, like, to be the, the strong one at different times, you know, like in relationships, there's, um, there's times where you're, yeah, you, you don't feel, you don't feel very joyful and someone can be there to encourage you. But if you're just by yourself, then those ebbs and flows of your, your joy don't really, they're not met with anything to bring them back up. Yeah. Yeah. And to be sure, like discipleship is going to have its fair share of face palms, right? Yeah. Just like, oh my gosh. And you can imagine like Jesus. Yeah face palming so many times, mm -hmm. you know, James and John saying, Hey man, can we call down fire and smoke those Sumerians? How about that? Jesus, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just mm -hmm. so many of those times where Jesus is like, what is wrong with or you the mom guys? coming and asking, can my son still yeah, on your right and left? Yeah. You know, so it's going to have yeah. its fair share of frustrations to be sure. But I just want to leave us with um, a picture of Jesus being overjoyed uh, because of discipleship. Mm. All right, now this is in Luke chapter 10. And just to give the context, in Luke 9, Jesus uh, called his apostles, sent them out by twos into different cities, uh, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the kingdom of God. And it just turns out incredible. I mean, they get the biggest crowds that they've seen because of this. All right, now in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus calls 70 uh, regular disciples, you know, not, not the apostles. They're just normal followers of Jesus. The early Christians believed that Barnabas was, um, was one of these 70. And uh, he gives them a very similar mandate. He tells them to go in pairs into different cities, to eat what's in front of them, don't take any money, anything like that. Uh, when you get there, say the kingdom of God has come near you. Uh, if if there's someone sick, then heal them, all right? If they don't receive you, shake the dust on your, off your feet, all that. There's, there's one thing that he left out, one major thing that he left out from the uh, Luke 10 passage from the, uh, as opposed or comparing it to the Luke 9 passage. And in Luke 9, it's him saying, in addition to healing the sick and preaching the kingdom of God, also cast out demons. Well, he did not say that to the 70. He didn't give them that authority. And yet... What do you think they came across as they are going to do this? They came across people that were possessed or oppressed by demons, were demonized. Mm -hmm. Whatever word you want to use. So what happened? Well, let's get into this a little bit, okay? 
We're going to start in verse 17 of Luke 10. So the 70 returned. So they did their mission. We don't know how long this lasted, but eventually they all returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. All right, so pause real quick. They're out trying to just do what Jesus did. They're keeping things simple. They're just sticking to the script, basically, you know? They're not getting too far ahead, not behind. And as they're doing this, though, they encounter people with demons. And so probably they just do what they've seen Jesus doing. Right. You see, that's kind of a theme from the Gospels, like when Peter runs into Tabitha and she's dead. He just does what he saw Jesus do in the past in Mark 5. He was there. He saw it. So he just keeps it really simple. Well, that's probably what happened. They run into Jesus. They trust the power of Jesus's name and his authority and the demons go out and they are filled with joy as a result of this discipleship. That's not all. All right. Sorry. It's the hands thing. Um, do you want to talk with your hands? Man, I love to talk with my hands. Um, now, Jesus replied to them, behold, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And that is where most preachers stop. And they talk about how don't get all you know into the miracles and stuff, because we're not supposed to rejoice in that. We just need to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And all that stuff is true, but that's not where Luke ends in this story. That's not all that Jesus says. What does he say next? What does he say next? (laughs) Well, he prays. Mm. It's a pretty interesting thing. Right there in front of everybody, Jesus prays. Verse 21, at that very time, right then, immediately, right? He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. First thing I want to say about that is that I don't know how I would feel if I heard Jesus say that, right? I mean, like, yeah, it's cool. I saw this, but oh, I'm an infant. Okay. Well, he refers to his disciples as little children quite a bit. Yeah, that's true. They're probably right. used to that. It's not a, patronizing or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and probably John was around like 14 or 15 years old. That's all of the disciples, all of them except for Peter were teenagers. I know. I remember hearing that. But now that we yeah. are like a parent to one and almost two teenagers, that's crazy talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I believe it's in Matthew 17. I want to say where they're asked to pay the temple tax. And Peter is the only one along with Jesus who is required to pay the temple tax. And that was for people 20 years of age or, or older. Mm. None of the other disciples. We, you know, you see these pictures of them, the last supper, and they're like all old bald guys. That is not how they were. They were teenagers. Right. They were our son's age. Now. That's crazy. It's so nuts, but that's what they were. And I mean, you think about someone like really mature looking at teenagers and it's like, you guys are babies. I mean, you've heard people say that, Mm -hmm. but they are in a sense, you know, and especially in a spiritual sense, they're like really young in the faith. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is twice their age. So they they are old enough that they could be his children almost. Yeah, absolutely. And he... This, so he's he's really ha- he's joyful. He's overjoyed because um, they are doing what he does. Mm. And as a parent, and we talked about this before, but when you see your kid being able to do what you do, it's just man. There's that's a great great feeling. Yeah, I think that. I mean, to come back to the idea of 
Paul being, you know, wa- you know, wanting to depart. Like, I think if you think I've I've done my job, and especially as a parent, like you feel like a big chunk of your job is to raise up your kid in a way where they're going to follow the Lord. So if you feel if you see that happening, it makes it makes it a lot easier to to focus on the joy that would be going to heaven rather than like all this unfinished business. Yeah. And Jesus is at war. Yeah. He is at war and his kids basically, his spiritual kids are dealing death blows. And man, he is overjoyed. And let me show you just how joyful he is. All right. This says he rejoiced, sorry. In verse 21 it says he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. It said a couple of places. This is one of the times where it does. And that word in Greek, if I'm remembering correctly, is agaliao. That's the that's the root word, agaliao. And that word, the picture of that is, is basically this. I don't know how many of y'all have been seeing the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan. But one of the earliest shots that he's he's still like so famous for is in the playoffs when they were going up against the Cavs. And I think this is in like 90 um, when they're going up against the Cavs. And for some reason, the Cavs coach, I think it was Lenny Wilkins at the time, he put Craig Elo on Michael Jordan instead of Ron Harper. I'm going way too much into basketball right now. But uh, my eyes have blazed over. Already. You see Jordan get the inbound <laughs> pass. He dribbles to the free throw line, and he jumps up, high jump shot. Elo's all in his face. Jordan double clutches and shoots again, and it swishes. And what you see Jordan do is jump up immediately in the air and just fist pump, right? That is agaliao. Jesus is like literally jumping for joy. That's a, a long story to get to. A, I know, but it paints a picture, doesn't it? <laughs> He's literally like jumping for joy when he's seeing these spiritual kids punk Satan and the demons. Yeah. That's discipleship. Um, Joy is not always that expressive. Mm. Um, But man, I want that. Yeah. I want Jesus to like jump for joy because we're being his good and faithful servants, following Mm. in his footsteps. You want our, our faith... To like impress him, like yeah. The faith, I was impressed you know by those kind of people. I'm like, I want to, I want to impress him with that. Like, yeah, like the wi- widow of name, mm-hmm. whatever you know. Like, I mean, it's just, it's it's powerful and it's convicting at the same time. It's yeah, I mean, that's we can we can move toward that and we can uh, encourage one another toward that. And the more that we like take those little steps and we do the day-to-day things that Jesus calls us to, the easier those kind of big things get. Just when I catch my breath Fire starts afresh Soon as I lay my head The sun comes up again But in the valley of the shadow Faith, I'll take your hand So use me, Lord, until I've got no more to give But oh my Lord, it's like I've got no more to give Shield all around You 
answer when I cry aloud I won't dwell in dread For you lift my head Let mercy abound My own flesh and blood A covenant betrayed My heart have sorrow all the day. As I fled my home, what's permanent remains. My God makes me whole, and you, my future, save. Inheritance